0: The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton.
1: Welcome to the hardware edition of the AV Podcast. In this episode, we have the latest AV news.
2: Jason brings us the latest news on the free Wi-Fi campaign. And in our look forward to Bristol 2007, we hear from John Dawson from ArCam and Jim Cathside from Pioneer.
0: This
1: week's audiovisual news. We kick off our AV news this week with reports that flat panel TVs continue to set new sales records for manufacturers. Information from BCN Market Analysis states sales of plasma TVs in Japan for December are 75% up over last year. And LCD panels have seen a rise of 37% year on year. The sales figures are impressive. However, it should also be noted that falling retail prices for both technologies have also meant that actual revenue generated has only risen by 30%. It's also the time of year in business circles to publish your financials and Samsung will be laughing all the way to the bank after the publication of their fourth quarter results. Sales revenues hit 15.69 trillion won, up 3% year on year. Net income was 2.35 trillion won, contributing to what has transpired to be the best financial year in the company's history. Samsung are also now considered to be the market leader in terms of flat-panel TV production, with sales topping $10 billion. Sony has something of a comeback on Samsung's claims, as they were revealed to be the best-selling LCD TV in the United States. Recent results published by market analysts in the US market placed the Sony Bravia LCDs as the country's number one selling brand for 2006. This news, plus the company finally selling their one millionth PlayStation 3 in the US, can finally give Sony some light relief after one of the most financially devastating years in their history. Meanwhile, other AV companies were also sifting through their annual reports and noticing things didn't quite add up. Flat panel manufacturer LG Philips were reporting that their overall sales were up 3% in quarter four. However, because of the increasingly competitive price wars in stores, the company actually posted an annual loss of $187 million. In the world of converging technology and gadgets, there's always a shiny Apple to be seen when the year's financials come in. And boy, has Apple managed to clean up in 2006. Sales of iPods jumped a full 50% in the run-up to Christmas, with Apple posting overall profits of $1 billion for the year. That is a huge rise from 2005 where they managed a $565 million profit. With new products also hitting the market in 2007, could Apple be in for another bumper year? It looks like the Pirates have managed to finally crack the AACS copy protection on HD DVD discs as reports are rife that the first films to be ripped have hit the torrent networks. The films in question are Serenity, Batman Begins and Pitch Black. The breach has prompted the first revocation call in the format's history. What this means was explained recently by the HD DVD promotional group. If someone copies and rips an HD DVD title by hacking the key and puts the film on the internet for download, the film company engineers can determine what that key is and forward the information on to the AACS. In turn, the company then blacklists that particular key and updates all the disc replication plants with a new one. Then when the person who made the rip by cracking the key goes to his video store and buys his next disc, he'll find that his player no longer allows him to play HD DVDs. Although his cracked discs will still play. This technology has been in place from the start of production processes and allows companies to target those who attempt to rip off material, even if it is encoded to lower format files, as each frame of film holds the individual player's key. Interesting stuff indeed. The world of illegitimate movies and TV content on the internet seems to be taking off in a big way thanks to Microsoft's Xbox Live service. Around 4.5 million consoles have been sold so far in the US, and this has seen the company's IPTV network grow at an ever-increasing rate. Research has shown that consumers buying content from the Warner and Paramount catalogues have been spending an average of 480 points to download HD content to their consoles. This has prompted Lionsgate to announce that they'll be joining the service very soon. This research echoes Bill Gates' predictions at this year's CES, that the 360 will be a central hub in the living room, offering on-demand content of the highest quality. It will certainly be interesting to see just how popular this service becomes over the next 12 months. Who knows, maybe this is the unseen killer punch for the HD disc format war. And finally in this week's news is the announcement from Projection Design that it plans a world first for its new projector at this year's Bristol Sound and Vision show. The company's new M20 claims to be the world's first 720p DLP projector to feature brilliant colour technology. The M20 replaces the acclaimed Model 2 and offers a serious picture performance upgrade. Brilliant colour technology ensures stronger, more saturated colours, enhanced image gradation and tonality. The M20 delivers acclaimed best-in-class performance with no increase in price and offers serious HD-ready home cinema in a tiny package. The unit will hit stores later this year at approximately £3,500. We hope to speak to Projection Design and other manufacturers displaying at Bristol in coming podcasts. And don't forget that the AV podcast and AV forums will be at the show to bring you the latest news and views first.
0: Ow! The daily AV chat. AV chat. Log in to avforums.com. The Bristol Sand and Vision Show 2007.
3: Hi, this is Phil from UVM. Um, We'll be at Bristol this year and um, we'll be showing um, the latest um, range of of systems that will include both Blu ray and HD DVD playback, um, satellite playback of, of high definition. Also, we're uh, hoping to, to show Vista as the, uh, the new operating front end, um, as well as, obviously, the, the current Windows Media Center. Um, and you'll, you'll find us um, with Icon Distribution um, showing um, lots of, of great eye
4: Hi, my name is Sam Rolf, and I'm the technical manager for Icon Distribution. We distribute UVM projection design at Tannoy. And we are going to be this year's Bristol showing two suites running two different demos. One will be a home cinema demo, and the other will be a hi-fi demo. The home cinema demo will constitute the new DLP projector from Projection Design, which is the new M20 projector, and it's the first DLP projector to offer the new brilliant colour chip from Texas Instruments, and that, in essence, will replace the existing Model 2 projector. We are keen to point out, however, if you are an existing Model 2 owner and you'd like to upgrade to the Model 20, projector that will be available to you. Uh, We're trying to iron out the details and we should have the details available for the Bristol show. So once again, if you are an existing Model 2 owner and you'd like to upgrade to the Model 20 projector and have the new brilliant colour chip as well as some other upgrades, just grab one of us at the show and we'll be happy to go through what's involved upgrading your projector to the Model 20. The Model 20 we're going to feed via a new UVM Vista Blu-ray system and the idea of that demo in essence is not only to show the obvious picture improvements Blu-ray gives you, but the sound quality improvement available also, which we think is very overlooked on the newer generation of formats. And we'll be showing that audio difference with the Tannoy Highline SubSat Speaker Package, which won an award in this year's annual Hi-Fi Awards. And in the other Hi-Fi demonstration, we'll be using the new Tannoy F1 Custom Speakers, which have just received a very good review, five star review in this month's What Hi Fi magazine. And we'll be feeding that via a new small form factor audio biased UVM PC. And the idea of that is not only to show people what a £100 pair of speakers can do, but also what sound can be achieved via a PC because they're often overlooked as, as being a, a decent sound source in the audiophile community. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing all you AV Forum members and podcast guys there, and uh, hopefully we'll put on a good demo for you. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is C. Michael from KF Audio,
3: and I uh, just want to tell you a little bit of what we're going to be showing at the Bristol Fandom Vision show. Basically, we're going to be showing the new reference series, too, and we'll have a bad seven different new new products and reference to Mark two. Also, we'll be unveiling the new benchmark wireless transmission for the 5000 series. Among other stuff, uh, we'll be showcasing all
4: our uh, KHT products. We'll be having three rooms for those new products, and so come and have a listen in our Oslo 1 and 2. The Bristol Sound and Vision Show, 2007.
0: 2007. 2007. 2007. 2007. Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com Oh
4: my God, is there nothing you people
0: can't do? This is the AV Podcast. Jason
1: Bradbury. As you'll know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, um, I like to bring a little behind-the-scenes info from my life as a a gadget fan. I'm just about to go into uh, production for The Gadget Show, hence why I'm... Uh, My voice isn't as clear as it normally is. I'm actually using the microphone on my MacBook in my hotel room at about midnight before a a very early start for some filming for Series 6 of The Gadget Show uh, on Channel 5. It's starting early February, usual time, Monday, 7.15. But uh, this week uh, was interesting because I did my first film for the new series and it involved me going to Parliament, to Westminster in London, uh, with a petition... Uh, on which was 30,000 signatures, many of which I know came from AV Forums uh, regulars. So, first of all, if you signed our petition on um, 5.tv forward slash gadget show to get free Wi Fi for the towns and cities of the UK, then thanks very much. Suffice it to say, it was that day when all the winds struck, 80-mile-an-hour winds on the uh, banks of the Thames. And, uh, of course, because of the exclusion zone around Westminster, for people like me who've got a a grudge or or a point they want to raise with the government, uh, I had to do most of my campaigning uh, from uh, from outside the exclusion zone. It's a one-kilometre exclusion zone. And, obviously, we made quite a lot of that in the piece that you'll see in the new series. But with a a stripped-down film crew and just me on my own, I was able to actually approach Parliament. And I did um, make a little bit of noise at the DTI and I think the Department of Communities and Local Government, which was another department we were sent to. Uh, The interesting thing is um, there used to be an e-minister. And if my research is not um, uh, at fault, which of course it may be, I'm pretty sure that there is no longer an e-minister. There is kind of nobody who who has direct responsibility in the government for anything related to the kind of subjects that we raise on the AV forums. So I think that is a really interesting subject for debate, uh, possibly on the forums if someone wants to take up the gauntlet. Um, And hence, it was really difficult to know who we could deliver our, our petition to. Bearing in mind that on the day we were doing this, it was the day when the whole big brother race row flared up and uh, they were quoting in all the newspapers and uh, on Sky News and so on that uh, 19,000 or 20,000 people had called to complain. Well, here was I standing with a a petition of no less than 30,000 signatures, but I wasn't able to get uh, anyone to take responsibility for it. The nearest thing we've got to is the number 10 website, where you can actually submit your petition as an e-petition. As long as it's over 200 names, you are then duty-bound To uh, get a response from uh, someone that supposedly knows about that subject matter within eight weeks, which obviously in televisual terms is no good. So it's likely that despite having filmed this last week, you're not going to see this on the Gadget Show for quite some time yet, maybe in about the middle of Series 6. So uh, quite interesting. Um, Nothing to report other than uh, me running around with a a sign saying I'm a Wi-Fi hotspot. And having a bit of fun with people. Uh, But I can uh, rest assure you, as soon as we hear anything from government, as soon as anything moves forward that is uh, uh, tangible, I'll let you at the AV forums know. If you've not signed up yet, then go along to 5.tv forward slash gadget show. We did take down the petition for a while, although I have asked um, the producers to put it back up uh, because I think um, there's no reason why we can't continue to uh, uh, bolster the support. Uh, But if you don't find it, then send me an email at jason at jasonbradbury.com and i'll try and do something with your with your signature your support that's it for this week more of me behind the scenes next week
0: with more gadgets than q branch the name is bob james this is the av podcast the av podcast interview of the week with phil hinton
2: With Bristol Sound & Vision 2007, only a few weeks away, we managed to catch up with John Dawson from ARCAM. I started by asking John to give us a little bit of history about ARCAM.
3: I started ARCAM while I was still studying at Cambridge University way back in the 70s. And ARCAM actually means amplification and recording, and the CAM is Cambridge. um, And our original name was A&R Cambridge Limited. And we started, or even before we started making hi-fi, my colleague friend Chris Evans and I were designing products for other people or bits of products, particularly in the pro industry, because we had an interest in um, sound reinforcement around the university for music people. And eventually we also retailed a certain amount of hi-fi equipment and we decided to make some of our own, in particular an integrated amplifier called the A60. We thought we'd build, say, 50 and sell them to our friends maybe, but people I knew in the trade suggested that actually we should try selling these nationally through retail, Um, and that's what we did starting in September 1976. It was a very slow start, Uh, we sold a handful here and a handful there, a few to-dealers. Then we got the odd mention in the press. Uh, we attended a show in 1977 at the Penta Hotel. Readers will know that if, if they're old enough. Um, which we shared with um, a company called Tangent Acoustics who made loudspeakers and another one called Riga Research still around who make turntables. Um, and from that, we picked up a lot more dealers and our business picked up and became a real model of a proper business. And actually, instead of building 50 over 10 years, we built 32,000 A60s. So it was quite a, a start. Over the years, um, we gradually added more products to the portfolio, and in particular in, I think, the late 80s, we started adding compact disc, and we decided to do that properly um, by buying the licenses, which for a small company at the time, quite expensive, and a bag of chips effectively in a drive and learning how to put the thing together, um, and that way we were able to make a better sounding product than many mass-produced ones. Um, which is, of course, the thing that Arkham tries to do. Um, and we started building you know, quite substantial numbers of these, and I suppose I've lost count, actually. But over the years, we've probably put out a third of a million CD players, maybe rather more, into the market. Um, so um, it's become you know, a very big industry for us, and that took us through quite a lot of growth and a lot of international growth. And We now have perhaps 50 or 60 countries we sold in, although the U.K. is still our largest single market, um, and uh, we built amplifiers and tuners and all sorts of things um, to go with it, and then about six years ago, um, seven years ago, we could see what was happening with DVD, and we thought we'd better try to do the same thing again with DVD, and um, we talked to several vendors of the key and peg decoder chipsets and partnered up with somebody called Zoran uh, out of the States. and. Uh, started using their reference designs to make our own DVD players uh, with quite a lot of code. We were writing quite a lot of the material ourselves um, and that's progressed through the years um, and we are still working with Zoran. Uh, we were actually their lead customer for the SACD, universal part of the player that's just been launched, to the player family, and we've built many, many tens of thousands of premium DVD players. So. Um, we very much made the move into audio-visual uh, with our receivers, processors, and DVD players.
2: You obviously started off as a as a two-channel philosophy behind you, so what made you move over towards audio-visual?
3: Uh, business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we could see what was happening, and if we'd stayed purely two-channel, we would be in a business that was still um, quite good, is uh, clearly shrinking year by year and uh, it was a very good thing we did to bite the bullet um, and go into audio-visual. Um, sound is still the main thing for us and in our receivers and our DVD players, we honestly believe and I think many thousands of customers have found out um, that the products for the kind of money charged sound better than anyone else's. And That's really important, and I have to tell you, we can make a darn good picture too, Um, and one or two of our products, like the new DV139, I think we make as good a picture of standard DVD as anybody on the planet. So um, that's of course important, but we never want to lose those sonic roots, if you will.
2: So staying with the visual side, what's Arkham's position on the the HD formats that have just been launched? Are you siding with one or the other, or uh, will you be looking at a combi player?
3: That's... (laughs) the $64 million question. First of all, for those that are hearing this podcast, if you go to the front page of our UK website, rcam.co.uk, bottom left, there is a positioning paper which I and my colleague Jeff Meads have written, um, which will go into more detail than I can go into on a short interview. Um, Essentially, um, I think it's madness that we have two formats. But I also think there's sufficient weight um, commercially behind both formats that neither is going to go away. So I think they're both here to stay for the medium term at least and probably rather longer. We will consider making product for that market, but we have to wait until, A, it's shaken down a bit. doesn't mean one format's one or the other, but at least we can see a position where we can make an added value uh, in particular the enabling silicon and the humongous amounts of software surrounding it are still in their very early days, and it's too early for any specialist company to jump into this business at the moment. Um, no sooner would we have developed the product than no, it will be obsolete. So since we'd like to have a you know, reasonable lifetime for our products, uh, we're not going to go there at this point. Um, Instead, we've concentrated on making our standard definition players do everything as well as we humanly can because um, whatever any customer or any enthusiast does about the new formats and by all means, guys, buy in, um, bear in mind the products have short life cycles at the moment. The specifications are changing. Um, We think that you'll still need a top-class DVD player under our support for the audio formats as well at least as well as anyone else um, on the planet, I believe. So, for that reason, that's our short to medium term strategy.
2: John, moving on to the sound side of things, and we'll stay with AV for the time being. Um, You launched a very successful processor, which um, to some in the industry was a very brave move for for a company like ArCam to make a processor. There's not that many companies that do that. So what was the thinking behind the the, the first processor, the AV8?
3: Well, we had already started to make audio-video receivers but based on a platform developed overseas by somebody else, to which we were able to add a lot of our expertise in getting the best sound out of something. But uh, we felt very strongly that we needed to have control of our own destiny. So we set about making a full-fledged AV processor. We were able to find some very good engineers. Some of whom had previous experience in the area um, to help us put that together. And we spent the first few months actually sending staff around the States and around the UK talking to dealers and installers and reviewers and actually finding out what they wanted um, uh, before we put a proper spec together. And then we wrote, not only a hardware spec, but about a 90-page software spec, what this thing should do. Um, And at that point, um, we were able to uh, leverage our expertise and design something rather special. So... Uh, I think it's very important in a fast-moving market that you can do this kind of thing. And the Av8 has been very well received, and in the tiny market of processors, and I assure all listeners, it's not nearly as big as you think. <laughs> um, we've you know, probably got about 10% of the world market, I should think. So um, we're very pleased about that. The Issues with the AV9 are quite small, Um, we wanted to embrace uh, the idea of HDMI, and we had done that very early with DVD players, in fact, behind Pioneer, we were the second people um, anywhere to produce um, DVD players with an HDMI output. Uh, We wrote a lot of that supporting code ourselves, integrating silicon image parts and Zoran parts together. And uh, that was our DV79 DVD player, and we're very pleased about it, it's done extremely well. The issue downstream for AV processors is rather more complex. Um, and at this point in our life cycle of products, we've been happy to port, support switching functions in these processors, but less comfortable about trying to decode audio um, or recode and sample up video. Because in those areas, the specifications are changing, the parts availability is changing while you watch, and it's taking a while to settle down. There are also issues issues in extracting the audio from HDMI with what we consider to be sufficient quality, uh, which means we're not going to jump in quickly until we've solved those problems, and we know how to do that, but it will take time for products to emerge. Um, So that's been our position so far with processors, and um, all of our products now support HDMI switching, uh, but it will be a while before we support um, functions that draw the audio and perhaps the video from HDMI.
2: John, I was at your uh, your talk at the event too where you discussed HDMI and that was maybe, what, three years ago now? Um, what you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was certainly a while back. So what are we looking at at the future now for for audiovisual products and, and that kind of thing? Is there anything that you can let let out of the bag for us?
3: Well, I can't really tell you about our future product plans um, until we're something we're ready to talk about publicly. What I can say is that things are beginning to stabilize at last and thank goodness they are. Um, The HDMI interface has been through several revisions, um, none of which is particularly problematic Um, but um, there have been quite a lot of issues as the industry has grappled with the um, content management protection schemes on HDMI and others of course in getting everything to work seamlessly together. Um, and you know, we've certainly taken an active part in trying to solve some of those issues, uh, whether they've occurred with us or with products to which, into which our products are plugged. The future is very good for HDMI. It has become the de facto audiovisual connector of this decade, and for all I know, rather longer. Now it's stabilized. The interface can support video to as much resolution as you could imagine for the future, rather more than we can get off any disks or broadcasts at the moment. And it can support um, audio at all the rates suggested, both for existing stuff and for the new HD formats. Um, But all we have to remember is it is a transport mechanism. It's one way of getting a signal from A to B. Um, It's particularly attractive um, to our, our colleagues from Hollywood and others because it has strong digital rights management on it.
2: So, John, um, we've got the Bristol show coming up very, very soon. Um, Do you have any product launches for there?
3: Oh, for sure. Um, The main thrust of what we're doing is uh, we're going to be giving the first public launch um, of our new Movie Solo, Solo Movie 5.1, it's called, um, which builds on the stereo product that we launched two years ago that's been extremely well-received and very successful for us. And Movie Solo supports DVD, it supports um, DivX, it supports DVD audio and SACD and CD, all as replay medium. It's got scalers in it, deinterlacers, HDMI pass-throughs, um, a DAB and FM radio tuner, iPod interface, alarm clock function and a whole host of other things including a rather nice learning remote, including um, codes for Sky and Sky Plus and so forth. So. Um, This is very exciting, it's been extremely well received in trade previews um, and people will be able to see it there in its own room with a big, biggish plasma screen um, at the Bristol show. We'll be also talking about the 139, our bb 139 is our top um, DVD player and that will be there and um, you may well see that powering some other systems across the show uh, with some very high performance projectors and the like. Um, and a couple of surprises
2: too. John, I've been speaking to um, a few of my friends in the industry re- recently, and it looks like hi fi is making a bit of a comeback. It appears that a lot of people are suddenly realising that um, multi-channel systems. Um, in general, although there there are a few out there that do sound good with music but some multi-channel systems just don't do justice to your music collection and of course we're in the age of the iPod and so on so Hi-Fi seems to be making a bit of a comeback. What's Arkham's plans for for future Hi-Fi product then?
3: Well, both our stereo products, of conventional Hi-Fi if you will, and our multi-channel products uh, perform the Hi-Fi function properly and I believe to a very high standard. So whether our products are stereo or multi-channel capable, um, in all cases you'll be able to use them where you'd use an existing stereo system. So I think that's a very important point to make. We do have further plans to continue to develop our stereo products, um, but I'm not really able to talk about them at the moment. Um, But you can rest assured it's a very important part of the market for us. Not only is it our heritage, but it's a considerable portion of what we do going forward. Um, but equally we're going to make sure that all the multi-channel products we produce are crackingly good in stereo, as I think you already know most of them are. So um, that's where we're positioned on that. Music's very important, and more so in my view than most movies.
2: What are your plans for connectivity in the future? I mean, we have all these MP3 players and hard drive players and so on. How, how are you going to connect that in with, with the Arkham brand?
3: Um, in all sorts of ways. Um, Solo and Movie Solo that's launching at Bristol are both capable of interfacing intelligently with an iPod. Um, that means more than just a jack on the front, which we did pioneer pretty much. But it means that there are smart leads and smart docks um, that go with the iPod that can show part of the iPod front panel interface on our own front panels and use our RCAN remotes to control that iPod. So that's key. Um, we may in due course roll that out into other products. We will have to see we're also interested with Ethernet and other forms of interconnectivity and you might expect some action there sometime in the future. Uh, it's something already built into the um, not yet released but now imminent um, audio server that we've been working on for about three years. So um, you can do quite a lot of clever things with that. So we're very well aware of some of the new interfaces. There are others too that we don't want to talk about today. Um, And believe you me, um, we're keeping a very close eye on it and more.
2: John, it's been fascinating speaking to you today. I look forward to meeting you at Bristol and thank you very much for joining the AV podcast today. That's my pleasure. This is the AV podcast. Many podcast listeners will remember back to the end of last year when we interviewed Jim from Pioneer. Well, we thought it was a good time just before Bristol to catch up with Jim again. So welcome, Jim. Hi, mate. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. What's happening in the world of Pioneer at this moment in time then?
5: Well, as I say, it's been pretty busy really. Uh, Obviously, uh, lead up to the Christmas season and uh, back into the new year. uh, Obviously, straight back in and obviously the Bristol show in February, so uh, already working on that. And of course, typically as a product manager, I'm already working on uh, lots of new products for next year, let alone what we'll introduce during this year. So when I say next year, 2008. But, uh, no, we've got some interesting interesting products. I think uh, on the plasma front, of course, there's been some uh, stories already that have come out of the American show, CES. Uh, Pioneer was showing uh, technology that will be introduced on the next generation of plasmas, which we regard as G8, uh, which was actually caused quite a stir in CES, Uh, breathtaking uh, contrast ratios, and... uh, And rumour again that Pioneer have actually reinvented their plasma. In fact, uh, that's very much the case. It's a brand new plasma from the bottom up. The engineers have actually been able to start from scratch, not only from the actual construction of the glass, but the ASIC behind it, how it works, everything. It's a completely new panel from Pioneer. So that's going to be very exciting, but that's going to be a little bit later this year. So uh, certainly not for the Bristol show. Uh, So things like that at the moment, really.
2: HD, DVD, Blu ray, it's now hit the UK. So, when mm. can we expect product from Pioneer?
5: Yeah, we've, uh, again, I was, I was only in a product meeting yesterday in Europe. Um, obviously, we haven't announced a plan for Europe yet. I mean, uh, on the roadmaps, our plan is to try and introduce something in the first half, if not the first quarter of this year. Uh, again, you know, we talked about this when we had our last uh, little chat. And at the end of the day, we are one of the smaller companies. We're, we're not as big as uh, some of those companies out there. Uh, and actually, for us to get on and produce a machine, particularly a machine like this for the global market, it's not so easy for us to switch the buttons with a lot of the bigger boys. But having said that, we've been busy uh, with our drive for the PC market, uh, that's been introduced and uh, again obviously it's quite expensive, tends to be at the high end but a lot of commercial interest in that um, that's been quite interesting. The American Blu-ray player, we're going to be showing that over at Bristol, we actually showed that also at the uh, Hi-Fi show at Heathrow uh, back in of last year and uh, uh, sorry the hi-fi show at uh, no Tower no- it- other than Hammersmith night at Heathrow and uh, obviously that is the American model it's our first you know first player if you like and obviously it's, it's not going to be exactly the same model It will be brought out to the UK as say that we're a new global model but it will share some of the uh, common features of it I mean Pioneer obviously been working in optical disc engineering for a very long time I mean uh, in fact arguably longer than many, particularly when it comes to video, because, of course, we were one of the companies that were uh, firmly involved with Laserdisc, not only the actual manufacturing and the players, but actually the media and software as well that was used in those players. Um, So it's very much, again, part of our heritage, if you like, optical disc engineering and uh, DVD recorders and writers and readers. And the same now with Blu-ray. And what we're trying to do is offer the best we possibly can from it. Um, it's interesting, if you look at the Blu-ray specification, if you actually uh, went onto the Blu-ray.org website and had a look at the spec, if you look at what can be put onto the disc in terms of HD, um, it can only actually be apl- applied in 1080p in, in really one way, and that is at 24 hertz, 24 frames refresh rate which, of course, is great for Hollywood. That means that they have got no more of this uh, conversion into PAL and NTSC territories of film stock. They can literally go straight from the masters straight onto Blu-ray. So there's obviously distinct advantages for them in doing that. Um, Now, many of the the TV manufacturers out there, and indeed some of the very early Blu-ray players that we're seeing, indeed in the States, and we've had very good publicity so far for our player for its picture performance, uh, and certainly the ones that we've seen so far in the UK, They all generally output 1080p 60 hertz. Um, We regard 60p or 60 uh, frames per second. They're actually having to do that on board. So the media itself, 1080p 60, is not part of the Blu-ray spec. You can't put that on the disc. So in order to do that progressively, the player's having to convert from 24 frames per second progressive to 60. Now that's always been an issue, it's always been a problem with all the formats we've had before, with DVD it was an issue. Whereas with that frame rate conversion you haven't got a perfect pull down. Subsequently you get, uh, you get all sorts of correction errors where you're getting frames overlapping, because that's how it has to work in the way that it has to pull it down. And then even sound issues as well, distortion of the sound pitch as well for, the, uh, for it actually syncing with the uh, video. The great thing about uh, this for us, the Pioneer, is that on the Pioneer Blu-ray player, you can actually force the player to output 1080p24, and it's about the only player on the market that you can get to do that at the moment. Uh, Now again, that's no advantage with most plasmas, because most plasmas out there today, they can only handle at best 50 or 60p, if at all, Uh, some of them don't handle even that. Or 720p or 1080i, etc. Obviously, uh, all the other HD specifications generally they do handle. But if you actually tried to output uh, 24p from a or 1080p 24 from a Blu-ray player, most TVs obviously just wouldn't know what to do with it. The great advantage of the Pioneer is, is that we've obviously been using our own uh, drive sequencing technology for a number of generations now. We call it Pure Drive, and that actually works at 72Hz for NTSC and 75 for PAL. Now, obviously, 24s into 72 go perfectly. So in our case, our electronics, and we've done the maths, obviously, to make sure it perfectly matches and that we can actually force the player to output exactly what is on the disc, and in the case of our 5000EX with the native resolution, it can then absolutely perfectly map that onto the screen. So that's why, in America, if you read some of the top American magazines and publications, our Blu-ray player might be expensive, but they regard its picture performance as one of the best in the market, and that's really the story behind it, Uh, and obviously we'll go on as we introduce our own products into Europe uh, to make the most of that and promote that fact uh, and how we do that. Um, It's interesting also that both 6G and 7G models of Plasma that are out there today, although not the early one-body models that we did, the 436, SXE and that. All of the others, uh, they can all handle 10AUP24. So in the future, if you buy a Pioneer Blu-ray player, of course you can ask it to force it to output other resolutions, but if you want to get the best out of the disc, and you've got a compatible screen, you could actually watch it in perfect pull-down. Arguably, obviously, with a 6G or 7G, you wouldn't have the full resolution capability 1920 by 1080, but you would indeed get the perfect pull down ratio and therefore better color and uh, sound performance, etc. It's quite interesting. It's deep, and it's a difficult one to get across. I mean, it's ideal for shows. Uh, It's not the sort of thing I think uh, most multiple salespeople are going to start explaining to customers, but uh, for the enthusiasts out there, it's a very important feature and something they should really get their heads around. As I say, have a look at the the, uh, Blu-ray specs. It's very interesting. And then consider what the plan is doing to output that. In most cases, (laughs) it's having to do it out of a lot. So it's quite an interesting thing to have a look at.
2: Jim, also at um, CES this year, there was a, a little bit of a bombshell from LG when they announced a, a dual-format player. Mm. And there's been plenty of rumours around the internet about Pioneer already developing this technology. Is there any truth in that?
5: I haven't heard anything. I work at the company. I mean, we'd, we've got nothing I in mean, again, not necessarily that I would, uh, to be honest. Obviously, if they were going to do something like that, uh, they keep their cards quite closely to their chest. I, I said before. I mean, pioneers' opinion uh, and, and still is, for the record, is that they don't consider that is an option. The cost of actually putting both machines into one is prohibitively expensive um, because it isn't just uh, the twin wave laser pickup or being cute with the way that you eat the disc. It would actually need then the brains of everything else behind that. I mean, uh, I've heard uh, that actually there may be problems even with uh, what LG announced in the States. But of course, they don't work for LG, so I can't comment on that with regard to uh, it not offering the full specification for HD DVD playback, including uh, being able to navigate its menus and that. And I don't think that the uh, HD former or the DVD former, too happy about that. So I don't think it's cut and dried and that straightforward, to be honest. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise me. I think the other interesting one to watch, though, is obviously uh, dual discs of some sort, because obviously there's, again, been a lot of gossip in the industry about various parties uh, working on ways of either having flippers or dual-layered media to actually enable you to play both. Uh, That, to be honest, would probably make a lot more sense. (laughs) Certainly for the cost of the players, anyway. It would make a hell of a lot more sense. And then it wouldn't really matter what player you had, because uh, as long as everything was on the disc. Um, but let, let's see. Let's see. Watch this space. I still think it's very, very early days to, uh, to suggest that we're going to see uh, dual machines on the market straight away. And uh, I think we've just got to give it time and see what happens.
2: Jim, another one of those controversial issues was at the What Hi-Fi and Best of Stuff show where you showed one of your plasmas up against an LCD screen. And um, there was a few fingers pointed at saying, well, how was this done and how was it set up and so on. Can you just explain, because I understand that you're going to do very, very similar thing at Bristol.
5: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, let's, let's just, first of all, to put the whole thing to perspective what this is about. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got competing technologies and lots of different things in the world. We just talked about one of them. That was Blu-ray and HD DVD. And we've seen lots of competing technologies before. But in the case of display technologies, of course, it's a little bit different to the days when we only had CRTs to choose from. We've now got lots of different display technologies that are out there. Some manufacturers firmly believe that plasma has got the best attributes and to reasons to do certain jobs. Some manufacturers believe that their display technology has. And there are variations even of plasma technology, app for etc. with Alice technology uh, you know, being used by a number of different manufacturers. And then, of course, you've got other flat panels like LCDs. And they work in a very, very physically different way to a plasma screen. They're very, very different, far, far removed from each other technologies and how they operate and work. And each, it's a little bit of swings around roundabouts on some of the things that are, are for and against them. Um, but generally speaking, with a lot of people, it's just a big flat tilly. Pioneer would argue, and so would a number of the other plasma manufacturers, that LCDs are great for certain applications, but they've got a couple of really big things that really drag them down when it comes to proper home cinema. Uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, Pioneer is a premium brand. We're not just... You know, the, we've already bought, bought, got recognition for our TVs in the early years at this flat panel TV market at making some of the best. And I'll say in a minute, we're probably going to blow everybody away again with the uh, the, the next generation of product that we're bringing because, again, it's so different again. We are pushing the boundaries of it. But we're a premium product. We're at the sort of top end of that. We're not going to be competing in a minute with the uh, the lower end or even the mid-level of uh, flat panel TV technology. That's not our market. We're too small to sustain that sort of business and be able to offer those prices. So we're laying a little bit higher. And as part of that, we, we recognise and can see that LCDs are great for some applications. I use one in my kitchen, for example. Um, they're fantastic for bright environments particularly. But as soon as you lower the lights down to average... You know, TV or even movie. You know, drop the lights right down. Even even if you're only talking 50 lux levels, etc. Most LCDs, one of their biggest Achilles' heels is the fact you've got these shutters illuminated from behind. Uh, Various technologies they're trying to improve upon that. But at the end of the day, you've got a backlight that's shining through those shutters. And as soon as you have crushed your black level, you have crushed your color palette you've ruined the colour purity of the screen as well. Uh, and therefore, we argue it's not good enough for home cinema. It's interesting. I mean, we're in a, a group of manufacturers who uh, are trying to promote this at the moment. Um, it's not just us house. Panasonic uh, are in partnership with us on uh, some research that's been done and uh, part of an advertising campaign that's been going on over the last couple of months. Uh, also has involved Hitachi as well, has been involved with us. And it's interesting to note that Panasonic make both LCDs CDs and plasmas um, but even they've issued press releases saying that, yep, yeah, we do. And that's because we think that they're very good to some things, but they're not, at the moment, in their view, good enough for proper home cinema. Uh, to do that, you're better off with a plasma. Uh, and that's really what that was all about with the show. We did a survey, uh, an independent survey was done by, you get these big analytical companies. Uh, and they obviously have to play by very strict rules because they're, they're hired by different manufacturers to test things and to look at the market. And we used one particular company called Cinnovate in, in Europe, a big organisation, and our sales Panasonic actually paid for the cost for them to do the exercise, uh, so it was sponsored by the two companies. But at the end of the day, it's independent. They go away and they go on with it and they do it. We provide all the equipment. Often they go to, one was done in America uh, over a year ago by another, another company, a different company in the States, and on that occasion they actually chose to use ISF to make sure that all the screens were equally calibrated now, on this occasion, Sinovay chose that no, the only way to do it fairly was that, look, if you go into most retail stores, these things are all out of the box, and they're just put into their factory default mode. That's how you see them. Occasionally, you might get the sound out of a play around, and even the customer. But generally speaking, most people would say it's fair and equal to put them all just factory reset. They're all equal, then. They're all fair. Um, and that's how the survey was done by Synovate. Very interesting statistics came back from the report. People's perceptions of the technologies, particularly LCD, prior to going through lots of different rooms with different lighting levels, some in a retail type environment, some in normal living room type conditions and darker environments, most of them swung around dramatically from what they originally thought was going to come out on top to uh, realizing that actually the picture's really washed out when you look at some of these LCDs in a really dark room. And that's what it was all about. So at Bristol, uh, we'll be doing the same thing. Uh, I noticed on the uh, forums, there was obviously, because obviously I do take some notice of the feedback that goes on there, and uh, there was obviously some people, oh, you know, it was a fix. And, you know, well, you know, at the end of the day, we pulled an LCD panel. And we chose to uh, take one of the top, or what's regarded by some of the press in the industry, as one of the better LCDs on the market today, as a direct competitor to our 42-inch product. Um, we black have the name. It's not about brand at all, and um, I want to make that very clear. We're not picking on any particular brand or saying that their product's not any good. Uh, we're just saying that LCD is good for certain purposes, but not good for uh, for home cinema. And then we put the two products side by side. We use the same source, equal length connections. Uh, the products have not been tampered with in any way. The Pioneer products come straight off uh, straight off of our, from our warehouse. It's just a typical everyday product. Uh, anybody can have the remotes, they can check their factory reset, in fact, I'm happy for them to reset themselves, I'm happy for them to play with the settings and check all the settings, I'm happy for people to turn the lights up, turn the lights down, and we're just basically showing a continuous loop of various bits of material, some of which shows this uh, huge Achilles heel of uh, low-level contrast levels from LCD technology, which is very clear once you've seen it. Uh, and the other one, which is, again, a, a major issue, is uh, response time, um, actual you know, motion across the screen um, and actually then how good... Even these screens are, and the particular R-CV we use is a 1080p screen as well, to be fair. So we're even at a resolution advantage of our, uh, our XGA 42-inch. But side by side, if we put some interest in uh, maps, very fine, detailed writing and that up on the screen that you can read, obviously, perfectly when both of these screens are static, but as soon as you start to move them across the screen, uh, unfortunately, one on the LCD is illegible and completely unreadable whilst on the... Uh, Plasma remains uh, clearly visible for you to read. And again, that just points out to people that, look, when you're looking at a TV picture, you've got to realise there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it than just picking out the main details that you're looking at on the picture, which often tends to be the actor, the person or the action. You need to be looking at the whole thing and analysing the whole picture. And once you start to recognise that, you then start to take apart... The resolution is "Hang on a minute, that's not very sharp there. That actually doesn't look very good," and that's what we're doing. And, and I don't think it's, you know, brave of us. Pioneer's always been like that. At the end of the day, we've got nothing to hide. I'm quite happy for anybody, else to say, to come and play with the product and check everything. Leads, same length, same source. Um, have a play around with the remote controls, even. I've got nothing, you know, no, no axe to grind uh, at all with anybody that wants to do that. It is open and fair and reasonable. And, uh, you know, it's just our view. If you don't like it and you've only got so much to spend, then go and buy an have to do. Uh, we actually had quite a few people at the What Hi-Fi show. It was quite interesting. Um, thanked us. Uh, that they actually had been thinking about buying a particular screen and now they thought again and they were going to go back to their store. And this is really what we're saying with the Innovate report and how it ended and concluded, was that at the end of the day, that's what the customer should be doing, is making sure that when they go into the store, that they realise that the lighting level's in the store and the way in which they're going to view it uh, and play with it, unless they can actually get the, the dealer, in an independence case often, to get them into a dem room and put it into more of a living room type environment, Don't be disappointed if you get it home and find that it's not quite the same as you thought it was, uh, because that is one of the drawbacks of LCD technology.
2: Jim, I understand that um, 2 Channel is coming back for Pioneer at the Bristol show. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
5: Yeah, I don't want to spoil the beans too much because we're actually doing a press conference uh, at the show. So, uh, well, I say a press conference, we send our press invitations to the press to come and see these products for the first time at the Bristol show. Uh, it's, it was just bad timing. We'd have loved to have done a, pro- a press conference, but it was just going to be smack bang at the same time as Bristol. And Br- press conferences at shows are not always the easiest thing to get together and do. So no, we've got, a, we've got a little bedroom up at the Bristol show, um, it's quite a small room, obviously just one of the typical uh, second floor bedrooms, I think it's room 234, I think it is, didn't we just checked that, yeah, room 234, and um, about you know, 18 months, two years ago, which is typical sort of planning time scale, so I, I got into early conversations with uh, some of the engineers in Tokyo in, in European product meetings. And um, and obviously, there is a swing uh, in the Japanese market, indeed, even in globally and and in the UK market. There is a trend back towards some two-channel products and an area of the market. And we're certainly seeing it with independent dealers where we're seeing either the older guy who's getting towards retirement or retirement, they call it the baby boomers in Japan, who are into their stereo. They probably have got into their AV as well, and they've probably still got an old stereo system, but now they're going back to it and replacing those stereo components. They still want to keep it separate. They've often got study or somewhere else they listen to their music. And, of course, we shouldn't also ignore not just the older ones, but the fact that younger people now have got a renewed interest in stereo or in music generally because of things like the iPod and because of the way we download and use music. Um, so there is a sort of a resurgence into just stereo, just into audio. And obviously, you know, I've been a pioneer 15 years. About uh, two years prior to me joining, um, my product manager back then was a guy called Doug Randall, who was then replaced by John Banford. And obviously, I worked with John for a long time. And uh, he tuned and developed uh, an amplifier back then. Of course, this was in the days of, uh, you know, a lot of the British amps, particularly uh, the British brands, really holding and maintaining the market and having a very, very strong position in the market. And Pioneer brought out an amplifier back then called the A400. And it's become an icon. It's an iconic product. Um, You know, uh, Hi-Fi Choice magazine only last year did uh, a piece on products that rocked the ages. And the A400, I'm proud to say, was one of the ones they regarded as one of the products that's rocked the ages. It had phenomenal press. I mean, bearing in mind that back in 1990, it was about 240 pounds for a stereo amp. Very pure, no base and treble controls, very simplistic linear circuitry, um, volume, you know, split volume control for balance, input selector, and that was it. Uh, and obviously a good phono input and a range of audio inputs as well. Um, and it did have a magical quality. <laughs> it was interesting. When we uh, we got further down the line of starting to develop a product and they uh, they wanted to make use of our relationship with their studios, which of course we, uh, we take very seriously with some of our AV kit, and uh, they want to make use of that, and actually uh, also make sure that these stereo products, because at the end of the day Air studios is, a, is very much a, an audio recording studio, to go over there and uh, you know have a play with these amps and get their input as well on the development of them. The technical manager over there is a guy called uh, Tim Vinelight who I've I've got a very good relationship with. And, uh, you know, when we were over there and we we were having the very early chats about it, I brought up the A400. He said, oh, yeah, we should should get one. You know, we should just get one and have a play and it's well, why was it so good, you know? When I went to the archive, the Pioneer one had gone. Somebody obviously realised how good it was, I think. But uh, it had disappeared. So I had to go on eBay, (laughs) believe it or not, and buy an A400. And... um, and would you believe, in 17 years, the A400 still uh, holding its value at about £100, £110 pounds on eBay, which is not a bad return for a £240 pound amp 17 years on. And uh, basically, we got hold of one of those, got it through my service workshops and checked everything was all right and got it cleaned, et cetera, and uh, popped it up to air. It, is, it still has got a very magical quality, particularly in the mid-range, the vocals and the uh, piano or strings on it particularly strong, particularly wide open mid-range to it. And I look back at some of the old reviews and it was, that, that, that was all what it was about. It had this fantastic, magical quality. And basically, in a nutshell, we've got two amps uh, coming um, at two different price points, one at about three, three fifty; one one at about £600. Pounds. I'm not saying either uh, a direct replacement for the A400, that was never the goal. Um, we're not talking the same quantities. I mean, we sold about 25,000 A400s over an 18-month period back in 1990. I don't quite expect to sell that many of these stereo amps, so slightly different figures. And we've also got uh, a CD, SACD player coming, uh, straight CD, SACD player, again, about 350 mark. Um, Again, tuned at our studios. Tuned not only against things like our own product, but also uh, extensively tuned. We pulled the top and a lot of the award winners this year from the various magazines, competitors' products, uh, to make sure that we, we know what we're up against and how good our product really is. And I'm pretty confident, uh, particularly the, the larger amp, the A9, is gorgeous. It's a really, really nice amp. So the uh, cat's out of the bag, I've told you too much, but get along to the show and really try and have a listen to those. I think, I hope, you'll be very impressed with them. And I hope that people who've got A400s out there and remember those products will think, ooh, you know, this might be worth listening to. Pioneer did have a very good rep- reputation back then. You know, we started all the others then. All of our competitors back then started bringing out, uh, you know, special signature versions of their amps, and there's, you know, it's a little revival amongst the japanese of first stereo products back then in 1919 pioneer started it really so come and have a listen
2: jim it's been great having a little bit of a chat and uh, a catch-up here thank you very much for that's joining nice, us on the av podcast thank you
0: that's right, phil appreciate it man join the discussion at europe's largest home cinema website log in to avforums.com
1: and that wraps up the hardware podcast for this week This is Jason Bradbury, sat in a hotel room, hence the slightly poorer-than-usual quality of my voice, saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed, and tell your friends.
0: The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV
4: Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.